0: They're really known for just the prolific dry fly hatches that happen consistently starting in early March, kind of building up to sort of the prime time. The big hatch is the PMD hatch in kind of mid-June through early July, which is, you know, a a large, basically mayfly, that big ticket meal for the trout. And honestly, just it makes angling a little bit easier for anglers because it's a pretty big bug. It's not uncommon to get in a run, you know, the creek is maybe only... 20 feet 30 feet wide at the widest but there'll be you know 100 trout feeding in a run run that's maybe 20 yards long
1: welcome to the fly fishing 97 podcast a look behind the scenes of the fly fishing world featuring insight from guides gear reps and resort managers thoughts on entomology fly patterns destinations and plenty of fish stories An exploration of this lifelong journey we call fly fishing. Here's your host, Mark Hopley, with this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast.
2: Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Today, we've got on the program Max Izagheri from Montana Angling Company. Max, thanks for coming on the program.
0: Hey, thanks for having me,
2: Mark. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time to join us tonight. Now, you're out of uh, Bozeman, Montana. Um, Max is the owner, outfitter, head guide at Montana Angling Company. Um, Maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit about the area and some of these famous rivers uh, that you're guiding on.
0: Yeah, so, you know, um, basically from Bozeman, you know, we're lucky to have pretty much within a stone's throw, you know, easy day trip, um, access to a bunch of different rivers, you know, kind of the big name ones that you generally think about the Yellowstone River, the Madison River, which, you know, kind of bring in anglers from all over the world to Montana to fish. But then outside of that too, we're lucky to have a bunch of other smaller rivers, including the Gallatin, Boulder, Stillwater, Jefferson, and then pretty much all of Yellowstone Park is kind of our backyard um, which pretty make pretty much makes the area just kind of, you know, a fly fisherman's playground as far as, you know, the amount and quality of water we have to be able to fish. And, you know, we're lucky to be able to guide all these great rivers um, pretty much, you know, some of them year round, but, you know, definitely from, you know, March through November.
2: Well, the historical significance of some of those rivers almost can't, you know, it's amazing. You've got, you're in some of the best waters basically in the world, aren't you?
0: Yeah. Oh, it really is amazing, you know. Um and then, you know, especially then when you look out to the extended area, you know, kind of including the Missouri River and Bighorn Rivers and that. I mean, you know, between those rivers, I mean it's probably I mean, I don't know the exact number if you were to average it, but I'd figure, you know, in the at least two thousand trout per mile, you know, pretty much on all those rivers and all wild rivers that haven't been stocked in decades and Yeah, I mean, just, you know, between the scenery and the fishing and everything else, it's just hard to beat.
2: So one thing I like to do kind of at the beginning of the show, Max, is kind of go back in time a little bit. Kind of um, maybe tell us how you got involved in fly fishing from the get-go.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, no, it'd be great to talk about. Um, You know, so, I mean, before even fly fishing, as most people, I kind of, you know, started out just fishing you know with conventional tackle I mean pretty much as far back I mean, my parents literally have pictures of me in diapers with a fishing rod and um, my family is originally actually from south Texas my dad growing up in Brownsville which is literally as far south as you can go and you know a quick basically 20-30 minute drive to the Texas coast and so really I grew up kind of on the Texas coast fishing for you know redfish tarpon snook kind of all the you know, famous saltwater species, um, started fly fishing when I was, I guess it would have been in middle school. So, you know, that kind of 13, 14 years old and really started out actually as saltwater fly fisherman, fishing for, you know, redfish and tarpon and snook and didn't really get into trout fishing until a little bit later in life. My family relocated to central Texas, where shockingly there is a trout stream. And, you know, from there started kind of cutting my (laughs) teeth, fishing those rivers. And then, Couple trips to Colorado with some friends backpacking quickly turned into moving to Bozeman full time to work for an outfitter uh, based out of Livingston, Montana, over on the Yellowstone River. And then, kind of, you know, basically fast forward, you know, eight years and now I'm branching out doing my own thing and, you know, lucky to be able to have so many great rivers here to fish. But, um, you know, fishing's really been something that's just always been a part of my life, something I've always known I want to do, especially I got into fly tying pretty much hand in hand with fly fishing, which is sort of a, an addiction in its own right. And then ended up working for a fly shop when I was, uh, at the end of kind of high school back home in Austin, a place called the Sportsman's Finest that was really a great shop, great place to be able to kind of get my feet wet from there to sort of branch out into the guiding world.
2: Hmm. Now, I did uh, do a little a little homework before we uh, chatted tonight, but yeah, you spent some time in guiding in South America, I understand.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. So I spent um, a winter down in uh, basically the Patagonia region of Chile, um, working for a lodge, really awesome setup, called La Posada de los Farios. Yeah, it was just an amazing opportunity to be able to go down there, fish a bunch of those waters, take people fishing, you know, as as of course he always goes, you know, guiding really ends up being a lot of hard work and that's kind of what it was down there. But at the same time, it was, you know, really rewarding experience to stay down in that kind of part of the world for an extended period of time. And I had done some fishing down there previously, just on my own, and but getting to go down there and really immerse yourself kind of in a totally different world that is similar in the sense that, you know, the rivers are you know, gorgeous and loaded with trout, but totally different kind of experience overall than we have in Montana. It was just a, you know, really cool experience working for a awesome guy who runs a really great operation down there, yeah.
2: When you spend time down there like you did, Max, I'm curious about what are the differences if you're fishing a stream or a river in Patagonia versus uh, the Madison? I mean, how different is the approach?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, from a from a fishing standpoint, Um, you know, as far as tactics and stuff goes, very similar. Um, You know, we're basically, you know, fishing large terrestrial and even some stonefly patterns, you know, down there it was pretty much all kind of, I would say, very large dry fly fishing or streamer fishing, very little nymph fishing just because the fish don't get a lot of pressure for one. And for two, the, the rivers are actually fairly sterile from a bug life standpoint. I mean, most of the food is That the you know brown trout are feeding on is mostly other fish or food that gets knocked into the river. I mean, whether it's grasshoppers, beetles, or even like mice. Um, So the fish are much more opportunistic. But I think I mean really the the biggest difference isn't in the you know the style of fishing or kind of you know the the health of the rivers. Really, the biggest difference you know I kind of think the best way to put it is you know my time down there I guided you know over the course of winter about let's say 100 days and you know we never saw another angler other than maybe you know one other angler a day from the lodge I was working for I mean you pretty much you know you're floating rivers that are comparable to yeah the Madison or the Yellowstone as far as fish per mile and quality of fishing but you know you pretty much just have the whole place to yourself and I think really that's you know, for most of the people that were coming down there to fish, that was kind of the big appeal, you know, is you can just kind of get lost and really find your own space on a river. Whereas, you know, on the Madison, the Yellowstone, I mean, they're phenomenal rivers, but, you know, definitely, you know, you're you're going to be sharing them with some other people, especially during kind of peak season.
2: That's a whole new level of solitude though. It sounds, yeah. it sounds pretty good.
0: Yeah. I always kind of say, you know, it's sort of like, it's Alaskan type wilderness. Just everyone speaks Spanish. So,
2: <laughs> but kind of, it's pretty much
0: the best way to sum it up.
2: So I'm following the path of your fly fishing history here. So uh, where did you go after that? Did you come back to, to the States and to the state of Montana?
0: Yeah, I came back, you know, and so I I, I did that after, I want to say I'd been guiding Montana for about three years at that point. Did it for a winter, came back and kind of really decided to spend my time during the winter focusing on sort of, you know, building an outfitting business here and, you know, everything that goes with that. And summer for us is pretty crazy as far as spending so much time guiding on the water that, you know, winter becomes, I would say, you know, you have to do all the, the less glamorous side of things, the bookkeeping and paperwork and everything. And it becomes really just a year round thing. And I mean, I mean, really as for no other, I didn't go back for any other reason than just, yeah, I mean, I think just kind of business got a little too busy here to be able to just take off for five six months at a time
2: explain to somebody that hasn't had the chance to fish a lot of the rivers in your neck of the woods is is Bozeman kind of right in the heart of everything
0: yeah I would say you know Bozeman is really just a phenomenal jumping off spot I mean it you know there's a couple other sort of smaller trout towns that are that, you know you could say are maybe more regional to particular rivers but as far as sort of like a hub from somewhere you could stay where with one place you can access really just sort of every river, no problem any day. Yeah. I mean, Bozeman, I think kind of just takes the cake. I mean, especially for kind of the Southwest Montana region. I mean, I would say, yeah, I mean, you know, as a day trip, there's, you know, kind of eight or nine big name, Blue Ribbon Rivers, easy, easy to do. And then more kind of small, no name creeks than any angler could ever hope to fish in their lifetime. And, you know, and then from there too, I mean, there's easy sort of, I mean, the, you know, if you add in kind of the one night overnight kind of stay sort of somewhere close by, I mean, then it's like the options just kind of, I mean, it becomes silly almost to talk about the amount of water, you know, that we have.
2: Well, when I hear, you know, the Yellowstone, Missouri, Madison, Bighorn, Mm -hmm. uh, it gets the blood going, you know, and and (laughs) one thing I'm curious about, what about these Paradise Valley Spring Creeks? Let's talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and so those, you know, I mean, basically there's three sort of well-known Spring Creeks in Paradise Valley, Depew's, Armstrong's.
1: And then uh, Nelson
0: Spring Creek, and I'm lucky actually to spend a lot of time on um, the pews and Armstrong Creek. I don't, I don't actually end up spending a ton of time on Nelsons. They've kind of, sort of changed the way that they do things over there. But, um, but yeah, they're they're really cool fisheries. I mean, basically they're you know just gushers that are coming out of the ground. I mean, true spring creeks. There's no you know they're not fed from the mountains they're it's pure groundwater so they run basically r- roughly the same temperature year round so you know even in the dead of winter you can go out and find open water no ice and generally feeding fish i mean it's it's kind of wild and then they're they're really known for just the prolific dry fly hatches that happen consistently starting in early march Kind of building up to sort of the prime time. The big hatch is the PMD hatch in kind of mid June through early July, which is a large, basically mayfly that big ticket meal for the trout. And honestly, just it makes angling a little bit easier for anglers because it's a pretty big bug. Um, not uncommon to get in a run. You know, the creek is maybe only 20 feet, 30 feet wide at the widest, but they'll be. You know, a hundred trout feeding in a, a run that's maybe twenty yards long. um So it's just it, it's pretty cool to see. Thing that I think a lot of anglers who are coming to fish in Montana are kind of you know coming for that experience. You know, sight fishing to rising fish, and there's sort of definitely no more rewarding place to do it than these spring creeks because you know the the challenge isn't to find the fish or you know see what they're eating because it's it's obvious, but getting them to eat is always the challenge. You know, it's slick. Super clear water, very calm, kind of fine, but undulating currents that uh, lend to light tippets and long leaders and doesn't, doesn't end up in the highest catch rates, but the, the angling opportunities are just pretty unbelievable on them, especially if you do get a good hatch.
2: When you're fishing um, a creek, as would, let's say, Armstrong Creek, sure, um, how important is the stealth factor?
0: you know, it, it varies. I would say, I mean, I would say the stealthier you can be the better, right? I mean, the, the less aware the fish are of your presence, the more likely that they're going to be to eat your fly. But I think like, you know, when I, when I think of stealth on the spring creeks, I guess, I don't necessarily think of where, where you are physically as far as kneeling or hiding behind a bush or even what you're wearing as far as color. I think the bigger... Because, you know, really they're used to people that they, they run a lot of cattle on the ranch. I mean, they're used to large life basically moving along the, the creek bank. But I think really when you think of stealth on the creek, I, I think of like presentation, casting, um, really making your first cast count. Because the first time you put a fly on them, they don't they don't really you know, they don't know what's going on yet, but a lot of times with those fish, you know, they're, they're picky and they're smart, you know, the the second cast, it's sort of too little, too late a lot of times. So, you know, I think that's really where it ties in more, but I mean, but that being said, you know, I definitely think, um, Delft from as far as, you know, where you are, what you're wearing ends up mattering and definitely fly line and leader design. Um, you know, if you're, if you're throwing out a, you know, a really short, I would say anything less than 10-foot leader with a, you know, small dry fly, I mean, just the the splat on the water, I mean, really doesn't matter how fine your fly line is, you know, just that, that proximity to the fish is going to pretty much ruin your presentation. I mean, really, you know, generally, I like fishing kind of 12 to 15-foot leaders, the long taper to them. So, ideally, really, the only thing the fish is ever seeing is your fly. I mean, they're never seeing, you know, your certainly not your fly line, hopefully not, you know, your your shadow or anything like that that you're throwing on the water. But yeah, just, you know, really kind of making that first cast count, giving it your best shot. And then, because a lot of times, you know, really, if if you don't get it done that first cast, you're almost better off just moving on to the next fish.
2: Is that what you do once you, say, you, on your first cast, you're lucky enough to get a take? Sure. And once you've played that fish out, is it time to move on? Like, does it take a while for that little section of the spring creek to come back?
0: I would, I would say it, it very much depends on the hatch. But, no, generally, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, when, when the bugs are pouring off, really, you know, a lot of times, and that's kind of where I was sort of, I think, leading out with the last question, that kind of a stealth question is sort of, you know, it, it depends a lot. But, I mean, yeah, if you have a quality hatch, I mean, it, you could, you know, there's days where you can stand within, you know, maybe move 10 feet all day and just, you know, fish to one fish after another, after another, because really when the, when they're feeding, you know, I mean, they're right. They, they still have to eat. It doesn't kind of matter what else is going on around them. You know, yeah, it's not uncommon to, you know, hook a fish, pull it out, you know, either it breaks off or you land it, but then, you know, his buddy that was right next to him is never even stopped eating, you know, you'll be fighting a fish and there'll still be 20 around you rising. And so, you know, yeah, I mean with that, you know, it does always yeah, kind of depend on the quality of the hatch, but definitely with thinner hatches, it's different. You know, if it's one of those deals where it's just, you know, a single fish here, single fish there, you know, if you snap a fish off on a hook set, it might kind of put down the whole run. Um, so I would say, yeah, it just kind of, it depends a lot on sort of, you know, the quality of the hatch, but definitely during good hatches. Yeah. I mean, it can be pretty ridiculous, as far as the, you know, number of fish and the fact that they'll yeah, just kind of keep eating no matter what.
2: For the most part, then, um, speaking species of fish in, sure. in the Spring Creeks, are we talking uh, browns and rainbows? Brown? Uh, cutties? What, what's in there?
0: Yeah, I mean, so browns, rainbows, and cutthroat, I mean, I would say, by and large, you know, it's mostly kind of rainbow cutbows. Um, you know, in the fall, definitely more brown trout seem to move in the system. Kind of the the creek so armstrong and Depew's spring creek although they're named differently are actually the same creek the name just reflects the the property that they run on um so they're two different property owners two different properties um but they feed into yellowstone river the outlet of Depew's is kind of at the end sort of the bottom end of it all um and basically the closer you are to that outlet it always seems like the more cutthroat you see you know i think they kind of move in and out of the river. Um, and then especially, yeah, kind of like in the spring and the fall, you tend to see, especially in the spring, I would say you tend to see more cutthroat in the creeks, you know, probably relating to spawning activity, um, as far as moving in and out. And then in the fall, definitely you start to see more kind of, especially the larger Brown trout move in. I mean, when I think of like, you know, kind of the the best time of year at catching like a true trophy Brown trout on, one of the spring creeks, it's got to be kind of, you know, like the blue-wing olive hatch and call it mid-October, you know, is pretty much your best bet. Um, but that being said, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you can expect to find all three pretty much throughout the year. And then, of course, Rocky Mountain whitefish as well to keep it interesting.
2: We're talking today with Max Izagheri, uh from Montana Angling Company out of Bozeman, Montana. I'm uh, also wondering in my own head so when you move away from say these smaller creeks and smaller streams into bigger water like the Madison sure. uh, the Bighorn, uh, I assume you're uh, you guys are doing these trips for the most part on and drift boats or is it, is there any walk and weight or how does that look
0: yeah so um we definitely know in the larger rivers I would say eight boat is very much part of the day, you know, on most of the kind of the the more famous rivers, most more famous stretches. We're yeah using drift boats and skiffs. There are some rivers, the Stillwater, Boulder in particular, and then certain stretches of the Yellowstone that have pretty significant white water. So as a result, you know, I also we, we also do run um, kind of high end rafts with fishing frames um, to be able to access those fisheries. And some days, especially earlier in the season when the flows are high, yeah, we spend almost the whole day in the boat fishing, but definitely, you know, I would say starting in kind of late July and through early August, you know, I think getting out of the boat and doing some weight fishing is kind of an important part of the day. Um, and just a totally different experience and all of the, our rivers, although they're large and very much effectively can be fished from a drift boat pretty much all the time. Um, definitely kind of, I would say results in more success at times to get out, work over some runs more thoroughly. And really the only way you can do that is yeah, getting your feet wet, doing some wading. And then of course, you know, like on the bighorn, I would say in particular, really the boat is just uh, a means of transportation from spot to spot to get out and wade fish Um, as it can be too on the Missouri at times, especially later in the season, if you're,
2: you know, fishing to
0: pods of fish that are rising, I mean, really, Boat is just kind of a vessel to get you to where the fish are, and then at that point you get out and. On the especially on the tailwater rivers, yeah, it's not uncommon to, you know, sometimes you will sit on the same hole or same pot of rising fish for hours at a time. I would say.
2: Maybe you could take us through kind of a, an ideal day in your mind on one of these rivers. Like what? What time of day sure. does this start? And maybe describe yeah. what what a customer could be looking at.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so I mean, I would say my perfect day for me. Definitely. Um, you know, and I think for most people, too, like starts pretty early in the morning. I tend to try and meet on kind of the earlier side as far as, you know, my personal guiding and trips. I do trying to meet kind of in town or at a fly shop at somewhere around six, six thirty in the morning and then um, getting in the car, drinking some coffee, heading drive into a river. Generally, drive times kind of like thirty five minutes to an hour and a half, sort of depending on where we're going. Um, and kind of, you know, my perfect day sort of starts with the boat in the water and an empty parking lot before anyone else certainly has gotten there. Um, and, you know, and hopefully floating a stretch where we're going to have some great fishing, hopefully a lot of dry fly fishing, mostly good sized trout and seeing very few people. And I've kind of built my kind of guiding program around sort of trying to, I would say very much avoid the crowds and kind of fish sort of less fish parts of rivers or particular rivers that. You know, we're able to access through specialized, you know, drift boats and rafts that just a lot of people can't get to um, Mm -hmm. without them. And most guides really aren't running them, um, especially the rafts on kind of some of the whitewater rivers, um, which kind of allows us, yeah, to extend our sort of, especially the dry fly season out a little bit longer than I think a lot of people are able to. And rivers, definitely some of the more popular rivers like fishing can get tough, especially lower water years. And we've been lucky for the past three, four years now to really have plenty of water in our rivers that have made fishing kind of good and easy. But certainly you can remember back to when it wasn't so much, and especially later in the season. And it's nice to have kind of lower-pressured options where the fish stay on the feed.
2: What exactly is your uh, guided trip season uh, in your neck of the woods? When does it start and when does it run through until?
0: So, um, you know, I mean, honestly i would say you know kind of the prime time season let's say is april 1 through the end of october um that being said i had a gentleman just uh this past sunday go fishing on the gallatin with us um we get sort of folks kind of here and there even throughout the winter you know people coming on ski trips that want to break it up with the day of fishing but the people i would say who are you know planning trips for the sole purpose of fishing that's mostly kind of april one through the end of october and then kind of the in between is very much you know shoulder season where from the sheer standpoint of that winter in montana is the real deal that much as i'd like to go out fishing every day it sure is tough when it's negative 30 and snowing and all the rivers are iced up um, good okay. time, good time for some ice fishing, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, you know, the, the river fishing, fly fishing gets pretty tough. Uh, doldrums a winner, I would say.
2: Well, at the end of the show, uh, before we let you go, we'll get all your details. So somebody could hopefully, uh, hook up with yeah, you guys. Cool. Oh yeah. I appreciate it. A good trip. One thing I want to ask you, and I always like to do this and, and this is going to kind of take it down to a, hopefully a personal level for you. Who's been in your fly fishing career? Who's been the biggest influence? would you say?
0: Oh, the biggest influence. Um, you know, I would say there's been a couple of them. Um, fishing in general, definitely my dad. I mean, he got me into sport, you know, when I was super young and I was lucky. You know, and then even beyond that, his dad too, my grandfather. I mean, like, you know, fishing and, and hunting as well really were just a part of my childhood. And, you know, I don't I don't think I'd be doing at all what I was doing, what I'm doing today if it wasn't kind of for, for their influence, lucky enough to get me and my brother out. Pretty much from as soon as we could walk, fishing and hunting. Um, but then, you know, in the fly fishing industry itself, definitely, I've I've been I was lucky as a guide to get to work with and meet a bunch of kind of you know the the real old time guides that most of them some of them are still even working now. But um, you know, one guy especially that kind of comes to mind is Dan Delecta, who uh, you know was one of the first outfitters when I came out that sort of hired me on as a guide. And guides have You know, sort of numbers in Montana and your number is clearly reflective of how long you've been in the game. Nowadays, you know, on the rivers there's numbers as high, I mean, I don't know what it's at now, but close to 40,000 and his number is in the low 400s and, you know, (laughs) he's been guiding and outfitting out here literally since before there were guides and outfitters kind of thing and he's had a fly shop that he's run out of his house on the Madison River. I think I don't know the exact date they opened, but I think sometime in the late seventies and he's in, I mean, between his guiding and outfitting knowledge and personal experiences, I mean, he's just been a wealth of knowledge and he also is, I mean, pretty I think kind of widely considered to be one of the best, I think fly tires, especially for trout fishing kind of that there is. And Hmm. yeah, I mean, you know, just getting to spend time with him on the river and getting to see kind of his sort of tying process and just kind of how he thinks and, and also too really i mean kind of how he runs his business i mean he just kind of been a huge influence he always he kind of really does stuff i think the right way kind of the the old school way which is sort of reflected on me pretty significantly
2: i would imagine too that in any outfitter um those senior guides are really critical to kind of bringing the young guys along and gals along and saying, hey, this is the way we've been doing it and giving you all kinds of great insight from years and years of experience. How how, how important is that in your shop?
0: Yeah, I mean, incredibly important, right? I mean, they're going to set the standard for kind of everyone else. And I mean, it's very much the role model that everyone else kind of bases it themselves off of. And, you know, I mean, it's sort of, I mean, not, not every guide ends up coming an outfitter, but there is, somewhat of a natural progression that you kind of spend your time building your skills and clientele and knowledge. And then you kind of, you know, branch off and do your own thing. And, you know, I think it's pretty clear that guys, you know, that certainly I've been around that have been successful and doing what they do and that are also good, I think, representatives for the industry and as a whole, have all had a mentor that, you know, has kind of taught them and brought them along, because there's really, I mean, especially, I mean, you know, as we were talking about, like, there's so many rivers, like, there's there's really no way you could do it otherwise, um, you know, as far as even just learning the fishing and stuff. I mean, you know, it's, it's the combined, you know, when you're, you know, you can't reasonably expect to... Gain sixty years of fishing knowledge in just ten years unless you have you know someone kind of showing you the ropes along the way to pass that on and and then too I mean it's just you know I mean I think it's being able to you know to I mean pass on a lot of the history i mean you know obviously fly fishing in montana i mean it's part of the state, part of the identity and being able to just kind of continue that tradition on and pass it on to the kind of the next wave of people is just incredibly
2: important have you ever had anything I'm sure you've had all kinds of weird wonderful things happen to you when you're out on the river but yeah. does anything does anything sure. come to mind that you might want to talk about today as a bit of a an interesting story from your time as guiding or uh, or just personal time on the water
0: the funniest and best stories that generally come to mind are of uh, you know kind of right i mean the the trip gone wrong so to speak but um i have uh, a lady that um i'm lucky to be able to fish with every year one of the nicest people ever but um she uh has a uh you know admitted history where no matter what first fish she hooks every day she's going to set that hook take two steps backwards straight out of the boat um <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I think it,
0: it's just, being, you know, it's inevitable to the point that now she's wearing a life jacket every time. Stories like that, but it's just, you're able to laugh and still have a good time, even if someone's in theory, you know, kind of doing something unsafe, but it's just, you know, yeah, it's just part of the experience of being able to, yeah, you know, fish with the same people and, you know, share stories and jokes and that one, that one's kind of in particular kind of funny because I mean, at this point, I mean, yeah, I don't know how many times fish together and the number of times she's fallen out of the boat well exceeds the number of times we've. Um, fish together, even though that that 's actually a really rare occurrence. I mean I would say she accounts for all but maybe one a season um <laughs> and so yeah, that's one in particular that's just kind of sort of I think about is kind of a you know i mean one of the things that, you know I think fly fishing a lot of times people can take it very very seriously and forget that just about having fun. And, and if you are falling out of boats or, you know, or, or, you know, anytime, you know, even if just something's not going your way, right. I mean, it's, you know, raining or lightning, you know, it's easy to get bummed out about it, but, uh, really you're, you could be spending your time worse than hanging out yeah. in beautiful places and going fishing.
2: How much of your guiding business is return customers? I would imagine that's, that's a, a fairly substantial number.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, right. I mean, I would say my, personal guiding as far as the trips that I take myself. um, I would like, I mean, far and most, I mean, maybe, you know, as high as I would say 70, 75%. And then, you know, but then that being said, because of Bozeman's proximity to Yellowstone park, I think, you know, and in the last, you know, five, 10 years, like fly fishing has become, kind of a, a to-do thing as a result. Like we get lots of, yeah, I mean, people that have, you know, never fly fished coming out, we're able to get them out on the water and, you know, make it fun and kind of make it easy. Because fly fishing has become a sport that, yeah, I think it at one point was largely inaccessible for most people, but now is very much on the radar and something, you know, people want to do and experience. And uh, so as a result, yeah, I mean, I would say as a company, as a whole, We're getting significant, yeah, new business, you know, new and a lot of it first time or never ever anglers um, coming out to fish. And and then even a lot of people, too, you know, that are not just they don't just happen to be in the area, like try something different, try something new. And, you know, either a friend or a friend of a friend has gone on a fishing vacation. And for them, it just seems like the right thing.
2: I'm going to ask you something that's uh I also like to ask my guests and and, and take some time on this one yeah. if you if you want. Um is if is there anything in fly fishing you would like to see changed?
0: Um hm that's a good one. <laughs> there are several things, yes. I mean, I would say in fly fishing I would like to see changed. Um you know, I would I would like to see for one I mean particularly in sort of, you know, in my world, call it the guiding and outfitting world and, you know, what kind of stems off of that, which um, sort of, I I would say an an increased focus on, uh, you know, like conservation efforts, especially at the local level, people kind of trying to sort of, you know, tune back to that. I think, I think, unfortunately, you know, I think there's a lot of great things that have happened in the last, you know, 10 years in the fishing industry as far as accessibility and, stuff i mean you know a large part of it's brought upon by i would say you know like the kind of the rise of the the fly fishing film um which has introduced a lot of people to the sport for the better but i think you know there's there's aspects of that that have kind of have left out sort of you know at the core a really important part of fly fishing which is yeah i mean you know the conservation and the science side more so than just the you know, I think a lot of times people get more kind of concerned about you know getting the grip and grin than
2: you know mm-hmm. sort
0: of uh, the experience, call it. I think and and you know and 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 you know and kind of with that too is sort of like you know the the education process of fly fishing, which for me really is the biggest appeal of the sport. Something that you know I think you never stop learning. You know, there's always something to learn about as far as you know. I mean, even the kind of I would say kind of you know the nerdy stuff, the, the entomology and all that kind of stuff and which I think has somewhat, I mean, not fully by any means, but kind of been overlooked by, call it the, you know, the the mainstream fly fishing media. It's kind of, you know, turned into more about, you know, where you're fishing or where, you know, kind of this, you know, what you're fishing for, but rather than kind of the, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you know, the, the minutia, the fine details that I think, you know, really mattered um, to a lot of people for a long time. And I think some of that has sort of been overlooked, you know, yeah. in, in favor of other things.
2: Totally get what you're saying there. We were actually doing a, um, a chat with a gentleman the other day, and we we're talking about how basically you look back to like the Warren Miller films. You know how what it did for skiing. I, I look at uh, the fly fishing film festival. Kind of that's that's done essentially the same thing for fly fishing exactly. in a lot of ways, hasn't it? A
0: hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And actually, I, I I do some ski instruction in the winter. And funny enough, in in the ski industry, it seems like in the past like three years there's been this kind of like cool sort of, you know, the, they call it like the return of the turn, you know, people are kind of getting back into sort of, you know, thinking about, yeah, you know, the kind of the, 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 smaller sort of, you know, details of skiing. And I, I think, you know, seeing that in the fishing industry would really be awesome. And I think it would benefit, you know, I mean, just kind of, you know, the idea of sort of, you know, I think kind of slowing things down a little sometimes can be helpful. And, you know, sort of, yeah. I mean, you know, remembering why you got into things in the first place.
2: I think it's all about balance too. I think it's really the next generation yeah. coming up in my mind is, is really exciting because, um, uh, these guys and gals are really dialed in. They want to, they want to immerse themselves in it. And then you've got the older generation that we still have to learn from. So I really think fly fishing is, is in a solid, solid place.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think, yeah. I mean, I think it's probably in the, the best position it ever has been. I mean, it seems like, you know, I think obviously, uh, you know, a lot of people in Montana kind of talk about, you know, things before and after a river runs through it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you talk to people that have, that were there before, you know, and then after, you know, that was kind of a big catalyst, kind of a spark for, you know, a lot of new growth in industry, a lot of, you know, new interest from, you know, people that otherwise sort of, you know, thought of it as just, yeah, you know, like something their grandfather did or something like that. And I think kind of in the last five years, there's been sort of a similar kind of deal with. Yeah, the rise of this kind of new wave of media that's definitely, you know, kind of I think really, yeah, re-strengthened the industry as a whole. And I mean now it's you know, yeah, I mean there's like multiple, you know, uh film like, you know, not even just festivals, but uh like, you know, tours going on all across the country. And, you know, we just had the one in Bozeman this past Sunday and hmm. I didn't actually make it this year, but I've gone in previous years and you know, I mean there's people there that, you know, clearly are, you know, kind of your Hardcore fishing types, but then there's also clearly people that are just, you know, interested and kind of, you know, wondering kind of what's going on. And I think that, you know, opportunity just didn't exist for people. And as a result, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, where the fishing industry is today, it's, I mean, it's it's unbelievable kind of, you know, all the the new faces you see every day.
2: I know you're a very busy man with uh, Montana Angling Company, and I appreciate you taking the time tonight because I know we've been trying to catch yeah, up yeah, for, for quite a while. I'm curious as a, as an yeah. outfitter in, in Montana and we're doing this interview in January. So what yep. does January look like for you? Is this a time you're kind of at the tying bench doing some business work? How, what are you up to these days?
0: Yeah. So, um, so a lot, a lot of time fly tying, honestly. Um, but uh, in between that, um, yeah, a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls with people, you know, that, a lot of, you know, repeat people that clients that are, you know, good friends that just kind of catching up and, you know, kind of coming up with our plan for the summer, you know, coming up with sort of, you know, most a lot of them like kind of, you know, they're have their sort of set plan. And so kind of, you know, from there kind of maybe changing a thing or two and then, you know, and then fielding, yeah, you know, inquiries from a bunch of different people from all over, you know, just, yeah, meeting new people, spending time trying to kind of build them sort of, you know, their perfect Montana fly fishing trip. Um, and then admittedly a lot of skiing in between, um, yeah, like, kind of, like I was saying, I do some part-time ski instruction and then, you know, when it snows get to, yeah, go to the Hill. And then, you know, every once in a while it gets warm. We actually had a pretty nice long spell of kind of, you know, 35, 40 degree weather. So well Mm -hmm. above freezing and even go out and do a little fishing here and there when, when we can, but, uh, you know, I would say that's, uh, you know, very weather dependent. But yeah, so yeah, kind of, you know, staying yeah staying busy, you know, doing all the, the business side of things, you know, doing advertising, kind of, you know, typing up some blog posts on the website, fly time, skiing, a little bit of everything.
2: Has this been an unusually warm winter for you guys?
0: Um, uh, It was until it snowed, uh, like, you know, 20 inches in the last three days, I would say. Right. But um, it has been definitely above average, but it's one of those things where... I would say it was a warmer, let's say December 15th to January 15th than average, but it was a really, really cold November, mm-hmm. much below, you know, average and much snowier than normal. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Yeah. You know, it's hard to, you know, yeah. If I, I I don't know where we're sitting as far as overall averages and, right. you know, don't want to speculate too much, but, um, but from a snowpack perspective, I think the kind of the good news is, although, you know, we have been below average, I, it's looking like after this last storm cycle, I mean, we're pretty much sitting right at the, the long-term average for snow. Um, so, yeah, it's honestly, it's though it's, so it has sort of been a little bit on the warmer side for the past three, four weeks, um, you know, I mean, you know how it is. I'm sure with winter, it kind of, you know, it sort of comes and goes.
2: And- Mother Nature's got a funny way of kind of always catching up. Exactly. You know, if we think we're behind and exactly, all of a yeah. sudden...
0: Yeah, we were kind of, yeah, we were kind of, yeah, you know, kicking the can around last week, like, oh, is it ever going to snow again? And then, yeah, now it's like it seems like it's never going to stop. And, yeah, you know, yeah, it is kind of funny how that works. It's just like, yeah, as soon as, you know, you start worrying, then it kind of, you know, comes around. And then as soon as you get, you know, complacent about it, you get hit with a nice dry spell. But, yeah, no, it looks like I think kind of, you know, it's just, you know, it has definitely been warmer. But uh, from a snowpack standpoint, which – you know from a fishing standpoint really is what matters because you know today's snow is tomorrow's water yeah um we're looking good so yeah you know i'm kind of pretty much planning on sort of you know business as usual this summer kind of you know fishing tailwaters in the spring and fishing free stones in the summer and i think it's going to shake out pretty well
2: what kind of uh patterns have you been tying up lately at, at the bench
0: uh, a lot of, uh, big foam flies, which is, you know, I would say mine and many people's favorite thing to fish, but, uh, I'm actually sitting at my desk right now. I've got a kind of fly that I came up with a couple of years ago. That's sort of like a variation as m- most kind of foam flies are on the Chernobyl ant, sort of in a pink color. And mm. i have got a stack of maybe 18 of them in front of me. And so, kind of that was my last sort of batch of things and then but sitting right next to him admittedly is a bunch of san juan worms so, okay you know kind of a little bit of everything
2: well we appreciate you taking the time and before we let you go let's get all your information out there as far as uh somebody wants to book a trip with you in in, in bozeman how do they go about doing that
0: yeah the best thing to do is just give me a shout you know anytime my phone number is uh 406-579-9553 um you know i pretty much i handle all trip bookings personally, and kind of, you know, my big thing is sort of, you know, kind of treating every trip as custom, you know, working directly with people to kind of determine what they want and then build a trip around that, because ultimately, you know, not, not everyone wants the same thing, and kind of I don't think there's really much of a one-size-fits-all. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I, how I handle it, and then, you know, if you're just looking for general information, probably our website's the best bet. It's just www.montanaanglingco.com. Um, we're actually in the process right now of kind of building out a new site to kind of reflect some changes as far as some new offerings and lodging and stuff. Um, but yeah, that's kind of a good starting spot, you know, but you know, certainly, you know, if you want to shoot us an email, you can do that too. But, uh, yeah, you know, I try and like talking to people on the phone.
2: Yeah, no, that's cool. That's, that's old school. What about your social media handles?
0: Oh, our social media. Yeah. So yeah, you know, we try and, (laughs) I try and stay active on, instagram and facebook keeping in touch with people um i think we're at montana angling co on instagram and our facebook page is just i guess the company name montana angling company um and yeah you know definitely if you know that's how you know a lot of people like interacting on that and we're always trying to post some kind of cool pictures when we can and you know certainly get lots of messages that we're you know we try and respond to as soon as possible you know Admittedly, sometimes I can slack on the social media messages more so than the the emails and the phone calls. But uh, but yeah, certainly you know great way to interact with people. And you know certainly if you have any questions or you know want to share anything with us, you know we're always happy to hear it.
2: All right, smack in the middle. Right in uh, fishing country in Montana out of Bozeman. You got the Yellowstone, the Missouri, the Madison, the Bighorn, all these famous rivers, very historical, significant rivers. And uh, Max Izagari is the owner, outfitter, head guide at Montana Angling Company. Thanks so much for joining us, Max. You enjoy your night. Absolutely, Mark. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.